Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Thanks be to God. Well, my name is uh, Paul, and I am one of the co-lead uh, pastors here. And most Sundays when we preach, uh, we do say this, I'm a co-lead pastor, because for those of you who don't know, I co-lead pastor, uh, Pastor Bird is the other co-lead pastor. And so the two of us, uh, we, we share this position together. Now, uh, we have been here for almost a year. So we're, we're coming up March 1st. We'll both have been here for a year. And this was kind of a, a pretty great experiment in a lot of ways because Pastor Bird and I, we've never done this before. Uh, we've never been lead pastors. And Newport has never had co-pastors before. We've never had uh, a group of people who have shared a single role together as the lead. Uh, and so we just want to be able to, I'm actually incredibly grateful to be able to say, I feel really blessed to be able to say, um, that it actually has come a lot more naturally for us than we were anticipating. Uh, we weren't sure exactly what this was going to look like. Uh, we didn't know how it was going to be uh, here in the congregation. And so it has actually been a lot more comfortable for us. It's been a lot more natural for us. Things. Our staff has been incredibly gracious in allowing us to figure these things out, Pastor Mary and the Elder Board. And so we just want to say thank you. Thank you for uh, allowing us to figure these things out. Thank you for uh, receiving us with such grace. Thank you for holding this space with us. Um, and so we are really grateful that it has been very natural. But one of the things... Uh, I'm really surprised about, actually, uh, that I, I wasn't anticipating. I probably should have anticipated, but a lot of what we spend our time doing is compromising. That's a lot of what we spend uh, time doing. Now, I don't know if they've told you this or not, but when you become a leader, you don't always get everything that you want. It's kind of a, you know, uh, now, certainly that's uh, tongue-in-cheek, but sometimes we function that way, right? Like, we think once we get to a certain spot that perhaps we'll just kind of get to make decisions or come up with that kind of thing. Now, the great paradox about this, as a sharing as co-pastors, Pastor Britta, you don't always get everything that you want either, do you? No, right? We, we together, neither one of us gets everything that we always want. And so it's kind of messy for us to figure this out. And it's messy for us to kind of uh, decide what's happening. But what's so beautiful about kind of coming together as a pair or as a team in any team setting is that you come to something and each of you brings something to the table, some kind of perspective that the other person can't see. And a lot of times something emerges that one of us couldn't see by ourselves. One of our team, our staff couldn't see by ourselves. One of our staff and our elder board couldn't see by ourselves. That's the gift of coming with these different perspectives. We don't always get everything we want. But we're able to see something that emerges that uh, allows us to see a different way, a way we couldn't see by ourselves. Now, this really resonates with who we are as a covenant people. Uh, we are an evangelical covenant church, and our series uh, right now is a book of Philippians called Mission Friends, which is what our denomination used to be called, Mission Friends. And as our denomination was kind of coming together and forming, this was a really big part of what it meant to be a mission friend, is that we never felt as a denomination we wanted to be so strict and rigid in our theology and our doctrine. It's not that we don't think doctrine and theology are important. In fact, one of the central questions we ask is, where is it written to be underneath the authority of Scripture? But we said relational connectivity, the way we remain connected in community is so important that we want to try to figure out what is another way to approach these things. And it became known in our denomination as the middle way or the third way. And as a lot of these denominations were forming, believe it or not, what created a bunch of separations amongst denominations, different gatherings of churches and people, was this idea of baptism. So do our, our kids baptize as little infants, as babies, or are they baptized as adults? And the covenant church didn't just say, ah, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. They did some really rigorous work, theological work, and kind of came to a conclusion that both infant baptism and adult baptism, being baptized as a baby or as an adult, 
were valid theologically. And so what kept us together, the glue that held the mission friends together, was to say we each come from a different perspective. We have a, a personal opinion. But we want to have unity together. We want to be united around Christ. And so we each came with these ideas. And as a denomination, we decided you can both be baptized as an infant or as an adult to find this middle way, a third way, a way that might not seem totally obvious at first from just one individual perspective. But as these perspectives come together and are shared, we hold these things and find this middle way, this third way. Our passage this morning in the book of Philippians really kind of uh, shows us what it looks like for a community to have this kind of middle way thinking and the kind of unity that Paul is calling for in the church, both in Philippi and then by extension to us. And so last week, uh, Pastor Britta, she preached for us on uh, what it means to see each other in our dichotomies and our differences through Christ, an essential part of what we do, how we remain connected in community. And then the week before that, uh, I talked about kind of the, the overview of the book of Philippians and kind of gave some ideas that Paul sets up some central themes in the book of Philippians. Does anybody happen to remember? Uh, joy is a, a kind of a central theme, but there were two themes in particular. Uh, if you're online in the chat, I have that in front of me. So if you want to uh, put that in, does anybody remember what any of those two main themes were? You can just call them out if you remember. That's totally okay. Uh, you didn't know you were going to be tested. So uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you both of them. Uh, Paul talks about uh, both grace and peace to you, and that's a Gentile and Jewish idea, Jews and non-Jews together. So unity is one of his main themes. And another main theme that Paul brings about is he, is he says, Paul and Timothy, we are servants of Christ Jesus. Our entire life is committed to Jesus in humility. So humility and unity were kind of some of the two main things that Paul talks about as these main themes in his book to the Philippians. Now, uh, this morning's passage in Philippians 1, verse 27 we kind of begin, uh, verse 127 to 2.18 begins kind of the conjunction of these two main themes, unity and humility. And that is, in particular, the kind of unity that comes about from Christian humility. So when we are in a posture of humility, specifically a posture of humility that looks like Jesus, that's the kind of unity that emerges that is out of, out of this world in a lot of ways, right? It's, it's re remarkable and miraculous. And so Paul kind of sets up this theme of, uh, humility coming out of, or unity that comes out of humility. And uh, next week, Paul does this kind of throughout his letter to the Philippians. He kind of builds these crescendos. He kind of comes up with these themes and he kind of, they crash over into these beautiful descriptions of both unity or humility or whatever it might be he's talking about. And so next week, actually, Philippians 2, 5, uh, and starting in verse 5, is something called the Christ hymn, which I think is one of the most powerful uh, kind of passages in all of Scripture. And not only that, but Pastor Mary is going to be preaching on that for us next week. So it's going to be a real treat. And so I really encourage you to come back in person, watch online, watch later, however you uh, digest that. But that will be powerful. Uh, but this, today's passage kind of builds up to that crescendo. It's pointing to this idea of what kind of unity comes about when we have humility that looks like Christ. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 1. Uh, we'll be getting in uh, 27. You should have a Bible in the pew in front of you. Um, if you don't have one with you on your phone, it'll also be on the screen. All kinds of ways to digest scripture. But hear these words from Philippians 1, beginning in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit 
striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. There's that theme. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I don't know about you, but as I kind of read that passage, um, it, I kind of get lost a little bit, right? There's like kind of all these thoughts and these ideas that are all kind of swirling together. Uh, and that's actually exactly how it was written. Uh, in Greek, which is the original language that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi, uh, from uh, verses 27 to 30, so the last part of chapter 1, and the first part of chapter 2, each of those are each one sentence. So our English translation, it kind of breaks those things up to help us kind of discern what the main ideas are and the themes are in those uh, sentences. But in Greek, those are two huge run-on sentences. And so there's a lot that Paul is kind of parsing out there. There's a lot of things that Paul is trying to communicate. So it's helpful for us to kind of digest a little bit or to, to see where exactly is Paul communicating. What is it Paul communicating about unity that comes from humility? Uh, the first thing is if you look at the end of chapter, uh, verse 1, excuse me, I do this every time, chapter 1, verse 27, the end of verse 27, it says, uh, and listen kind of for some repetition, it says, I know that you will stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Did you hear a repetition in that at all in our English translation? The word one right? Now, what's so uh, beautiful and what we kind of miss, Paul is incredibly poetic in kind of how he describes these ideas to the church in Philippi. And what uh, Paul is doing here is he actually puts together in the Greek the idea of one spirit and one self, one person. And so in the original language, it says that there's one pneuma. And so Paul, so it's one pneuma and one uh, psyche, suke, excuse me, one pneuma and one suke. These are the two things that are paired right next to each other. And it is as if Paul is saying, as there is one spirit, there is one spirit, which is a little bit confusing. So what Paul is talking about in the one pneuma is Paul is saying there's a single spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, who we as a church uh, affirm as a, our, our guide and our protector and to help us understand how the, uh, we come together in unity. And Paul is saying the one pneuma, that you would stand confident in this one spirit, both the Jewish church and the Gentile church and everywhere in between that follow Jesus come after one spirit, one pneuma. And so it is in one spirit, in the power of one spirit who unites us, that you are to go with one suke. Now the word there, suke, is often translated in our uh, translations as like self or uh, spirit or soul. Because a lot of times we think about the, the essence of who we are as our soul, right? We talk about that sometimes. Our soul is the very depth of who we are. But in Paul's day, uh, there wouldn't be this kind of separation of ideas. It would be both their emotional, their physical, and their spiritual self are all wrapped into this one idea, this suke 
this self. So what Paul is describing here to the church in Philippi, and by pairing these two things right together, it's almost like it says one spirit, one spirit. In the language, it goes right after each other. Because he's highlighting this point. The single spirit who unites all people to Christ, because there is one spirit. I want you to stand firm in that reality, and as you pursue the gospel, I want you to pursue the gospel with one suke, with one self, as if you are a single person. Isn't that a profound poetry to how we understand unity in the gospel? This isn't just that we all uh, come as a gathering of people. Certainly that is true. But Paul is poetically posing here, as there is a single spirit who unites all people around God, I want you to be so united as if you are a single self, a single entity, a single body. You are one in Christ. So Paul sets up this uh, incredible poetic Unity, one spirit, one self. Then uh, we kind of continue in verse, uh, excuse me, again, chapter 1. If you look at verse 29, uh, it, to me this can be kind of a stumbling block. Because in verse 29 it says, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now when we get to a, a reading like this that says that uh, suffering in some ways almost seems as if suffering is coming from God, it's, it's hard for us to kind of stomach that. What does that mean? And so it's important to understand the context of what Paul is talking about. We have a, a danger sometimes of when we read a passage like that, we can make a general assumption about theology that all suffering is from God and that God desires for us to suffer. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul has a theology of suffering in other places, but Paul is speaking about a very specific kind of thing that happens for the church in Philippi. Now, the church in Philippi, they were a, a part of kind of the Roman colony. So Rome at the time was this really big world power. And so uh, Philippi, in particular, was a community that was kind of around this Roman Empire. And so for the people in Philippi, citizenship was really important. And who they belonged to was really important. And Rome wanted everybody committed to them. It is important that you follow Rome. And they often would talk about Caesar as Lord. Have you heard this before? They proclaim Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the one that we want you to be following after as king. And so this is a really important politic for the people in Philippi. But in contrast, this church that is gathered by Paul is standing in direct opposition to that frame of life. Because Paul has said, your politic no longer is about the, the, the kingdom of Rome, but the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is dramatically different from the kind of Roman Empire that's being expanded. Not only that, but not are you professing Caesar as Lord, you're professing Jesus as Lord. And so what Paul is talking about here is if you are going to be united in the one spirit, as if you are one self, the kind of unity that you will have will be compelling for the people around you. And in particular, those of you, the, the people that are around you, those that oppose you, are these Romans who are longing for the kind of unity that you have with each other. But they're not even really looking for unity. They're looking for uniformity. You have to follow everything we tell you to do and say that Rome is the best place to be. But the church in Philippi instead is standing in opposition to that kind of unity. Because they're unified as if they are a single person around the one spirit. Because the world wants what Philippi has. The Roman Empire wants what the church in Philippi is experiencing. The unity that exists but only exists by the one spirit. 
You see, this unity stands in direct opposition to worldly powers because this unity is only possible through Christ. It's only possible with Jesus. Otherwise, if we're gathered around anything other than Jesus, we're just another human endeavor of gathering together as a people. And so this is what Paul is describing here. He says that both you will receive belief from God and also this suffering from God. Because it serves as a marker to you that you are standing in complete opposition to the kind of worldly power that wants this kind of unity. Do you see the difference there? It isn't just uh, just suffering for suffering's sake. It's the kind of suffering that comes because you stand in unity together in a way the world craves that the Roman Empire longed for but they could never achieve because they didn't have Jesus. They didn't have the one spirit at the center. So that kind of describes the first kind of run-on sentence that happens at the beginning, at the end of chapter 1. But then as we turn to chapter 2, Paul begins to set up this beautiful picture of unity that comes from humility. Now there's a long list of kind of uh, modifiers, and so it becomes complicated to understand what exactly is Paul saying here. If you look at the beginning, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, here's that call again to this unity. If any common, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit of any tenderness and compassion. Here, Paul is giving all these modifiers. If, 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 if. And then he gets to his main point. Make my joy complete. And what does he call the church in Philippi to do to make his joy complete? He says, have the same, be like-minded. Have the same love being one and spirit and of one mind. This is Paul's central call for the church in Philippi. The way in which this church will make Paul's joy complete is by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and of one mind. Now, I'll admit, every time I read this passage, I kind of feel like, okay, Paul's kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's calling for this unity that isn't exactly uniformity. They're not exactly all alike. They're all clones of each other. But then he says everybody would be like-minded. And so it's easy for us to make an interpretation that Paul is saying everybody think the exact same thing, which is actually not what's happening. Instead, what Paul is doing is he's exhorting the people of Philippi, and I believe by extension our church, the people of God, that we would have the same frame of mind as we approach life. It is not that we all think and believe exactly the same thing to a T that we're all clones of one another, but to be like-minded in sharing the same frame of mind as we engage in the world, as we are gathered together around the one spirit, as if we are one person. Now, Paul uses a literary device where if you, if you notice in that kind of modifiers of the, those four things, being like-minded, same love, uh, one spirit, one mind. The first and the last one are almost exactly the same. Being like-minded and thinking the one thing, think the same thing. And what Paul is doing there is in the middle of those two ideas, he is bringing out this kind of central idea of what it means to have this same mind, to be like-minded. And he says to have the same love and to be one in spirit. To have the same love means that each of us are moving in the same direction towards the love of Jesus. And so as we are each moving towards the same direction of loving Jesus, we are united in our frame of mind. Not that we all think exactly the same thing in our direction there, but that we are all moving towards the love of Christ, the gospel that compels us to be gathered around the love of Christ. And then Paul says, as you're doing that, as you're making that motion, this is what one-mindedness looks like. Remember, 
To be like-minded is to do this. You're moving in the same direction of love towards Christ. And as you're doing that, he uses that same word again from earlier with a slight change. That you are one spirit, one self, one suke, but there's this modifier that says with suke. You are bringing your full self to be like-minded in moving in the same direction of love. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's setting up the kind of unity he is calling the church to have, the kind of community that stands in direct opposition to the ways in which the world wants to function because they want to be united around themselves, not united around Christ. And so Paul says to have the same mind, to be like-minded, is to have the same frame of mind, which is moving towards Jesus with the same kind of love. And as you do that, you are brought together as if you are a single person. This is the kind of unity that Paul is calling the church in Philippi to have. This is the kind of community Paul says that what we look like when we are committed to following Christ. He goes on to describe then how this is possible. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. We do this by valuing each other in humility. Valuing one another above ourself. Uh, theologian Moises Silva describes what this is in a really profound way. He says that the main obstacle to unity is not genuine differences of opinion. We can believe different things. We can have different opinions. We can come together with different ideas. But the main obstacle to unity is self-centeredness. Do you hear that? The main obstacle to unity is not genuine differences of opinion, but it is self-centeredness. When all of a sudden it becomes about me. It becomes about what I can do or who I am or how I function. But Paul's call to unity is one that describes humility. And he describes this humility by saying, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Uh, let me, have you ever seen, um, okay, so people kind of stand in a big circle and they all uh, face each other and they lay down on each other's laps. Have you ever seen that before? Have you seen that? So I don't really understand this works. I saw it in school and I was like, this is really cool. So it doesn't matter, like, I'm a very large person, so I was very nervous about doing something like this. And there was someone smaller behind me. But everybody stands in a big circle, and they all kind of lay on each other. And they all, like, just stay in laying position as a circle. I, like, I don't know how that works. There's some physics people who are smarter than me could tell me exactly how that works. But it's miraculous to me to see how people all stay connected. But as soon as one person tries to stand up, as soon as one person tries to kind of take an action that goes for their own self-interest and not for the interest of the other person, the whole thing crumbles, right? Everybody falls to the floor. This is the kind of unity from humility that Paul is talking about. He's saying that if we are each looking to the interest of another person, we trust that that community is going to be looking out for our interest as well. And so there's this kind of symbiotic relationship that exists within the context of community. I trust that my needs are going to be taken care of by someone else in the community. And so I lay myself humbly before Jesus, trusting the one spirit to bring us together as if we are one person, one laying down unit of people. I don't know how, to, whatever. But this is what Paul is talking about, that we would rely so fully on each other that the, the obstacle wouldn't be our own self-centeredness, that I would stand up and it's about me. Because as soon as that happens, the whole thing crumbles, right? If I'm now caring for myself, 
and all of my own needs, that means then that other people are also caring for my needs to know I am elevated above everybody else in the community. And Paul's call to Christian unity is one that expresses itself in humility as each other are caring for the interest of each other. And so this beautiful kind of symbiotic relationship starts to exist, which is only possible by the miracle of the Spirit of God, the one Spirit who calls us to come as one self. And we move with this same frame of mind towards the same love of Jesus. And as we are moving towards that same love of Jesus, we bring our full self to this one self kind of idea. This is the kind of community that Paul is calling the church in Philippi to. This is the kind of community we are called to, to have intentional community where we value others' needs above ourselves. This is what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, if that sounds daunting... I think it's because it is. This is very counter to what we often experience in regular rhythm of life. To be laying down our own self for the sake of others. This again does not mean we get rid of our own personal identity. It doesn't mean we jettison our opinions, our ideals, our theology. But rather how are we committed to the thing together, the one thing being like-minded, moving with the same love towards Jesus. Now, uh, we're going to kind of shift into our reflect and respond. We could end there, but it felt kind of funny to me to be like, does this sound daunting? It is. See ya. Uh, Which sometimes does happen, right? We're sometimes held in this complexity, and we still are. Before we reflect and respond, which is uh, really an opportunity for us to practice these things in our faith, Right, to put these things into practice, what does that actually look like? Now, there's a gift that uh, Pastor Mary has brought to our elder board uh, as we've been doing a process of discernment through this book called Pursuing God's Will Together by Ruth Haley Barton. And as she describes uh, in this process, as we seek God's will together, it is for us to seek uh, God's will above all else. And so there's this uh, practice called a prayer of indifference. And a prayer of indifference uh, came about from a, a guy by the name of Ignatius of Loyola way back in the 14th and 15th century. And he says this about this idea. It's a really simple prayer, but really complicated in practice. Making use of those things that bring us closer to God and leaving aside those things that don't. And so Ruth Haley Barton, the author of this book, she describes this as saying, we ask God for the grace to desire his will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. The grace to desire the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And so this prayer of indifference doesn't mean that we just have indifference to the world, nothing matters. But rather that everything else that we bring, we bring all of our full self. And as we bring our full self, we long for only the will of God. Now this can sound kind of pie in the sky, and I'll be honest, when I read this kind of thing, I'm like, really, is that going to make a difference? And like miraculously it does. When we have ourselves centered on seeking what God's will is, it doesn't happen perfectly. It's messy. I get in the way all the time. Pastor Britta will attest I get in the way all the time. But when we really genuinely seek to pray this for indifference, to have this kind of humility, we are moving towards middle way thinking. That we come with the fullness of who we are, but we long for what God has for us. Not just me, but for us. 
And so as we close, I want to invite us just into this simple practice of being still before God. And the words that you can pray are very simple, and it can simply just be, God, help me to long for your will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. God, help me to long for your will. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. So I will pray this prayer of preparation and just invite you to commune with God about those things. About how you would have this indifference. Not to not care about things, but in your full care, trusting God to reveal God's will for you. Now, O Lord, Calm me into a quietness that heals and listens and molds my longings and passions, my wounds and wonderings into a more holy and human shape. God, help me to long for your will Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else.